Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you here a week after Easter. Did you have a resurrection Monday and Tuesday? I hope so. I am uh, picking us back up in the, in the Mark series that we've been in for some time today. And the two texts, or it's one text, but two different stories we'll read. My hope is that as we think through them, and I, and I talk about them a little bit here, uh, that you would be really encouraged along a specific line. I look at what God calls me to often, and it seems pretty impossible. And I have these beacons of hope in our Christian culture and even culture at large that I can sort of look to and I say, wow, those guys are really doing uh, great work for God. I wish I could do that. I wish I was better equipped, uh, better in every possible way because I'm just not there. I can't do what God wants me to really well like those guys or those gals. I think the story today will help us. I hope it does. I hope Jesus' example is really encouraging. So the question I want to start with and want you to answer you could maybe even write this down on your bulletin and see if, if in the next 30 minutes we can actually change this a little bit, because I think I know what a lot of us would answer. In Portland today, you would, you would ask this, how is a person most powerfully exposed to the living and active God? What's the most powerful engagement somebody can have with the living and active God? In our world today, where does your head go when you say, boy, most profound impact, most powerful exposure? And I think we have some pretty instinctive ways of, of answering that question. It's kind of like, where is power like that located in our world today? Where is it best communicated? What's the purest form, the best form, whatever it would be? So we have an instinctive way to answer that, but instincts are not always good. Sometimes they kind of become habitual. I think of when you watch a show, a, a movie or a program, and it's made by Universal Studios. You know, there's like a globe and then the universal words wrap around. My instinct, whenever I see that, is to eat Tillamook chocolate and peanut butter ice cream. <laughs> Every time. My first year of marriage, Allie and I were watching a show called Monk, and that was what came up at the beginning of every episode, which was when we were beginning our long and arduous demise into ice cream addiction. So <laughs> every time I see it, it triggers, okay? And I think sometimes, every time we would maybe think of mission, or we would think of evangelism, or we think about sharing the truth of God, we have some instinctive reactions. Well, this is what's got to be done. This is what works best. This is where the power is. I want to think about that today as we read these stories. Um, I have to add a caveat here, and you, and you might be asking, I guarantee there are, there are some here who are saying, why even bother? Um, on one hand, it might be that God will do what he does, and we're not, you know, we just kind of watch and hang out. On the other hand, uh, probably more pervasive, and especially our common culture, is would you please stop cramming religion down my throat? And so why would we sit here and talk about how to cram religion down other people's throats? You know, that's another way to interpret exposing them to God. And I don't, I don't want to think that that's what we're trying to do. I don't think Christianity is really a religion in the proper sense. 
It never was. That's why it was so controversial and weird. It just didn't fit the mold. There wasn't a temple that was needed. Their sacrifices were done away with. The way that Jesus of Nazareth talked with people and worked with people just didn't fit the mold of any established religion then or today. So this isn't about cramming religion or learning how to do that best. The moral structure of Christianity is not our end goal, what's right and wrong. The right and wrongs of Christianity lead to life. The end goal is life, and Jesus, we believe, is the life giver. I'm not trying to cram something down your throat. I'm trying to help you see a God that has given me life and help you see that he's the life giver for all people. So that's a little caveat to say this is actually really worthwhile. If you believe that Jesus has given you life and you take seriously what the New Testament calls Christians to do, we actually do have a life that God has set out for us, and it's one that includes sharing this life with others. So I think that these texts are really helpful in that way. Another way to ask our same question would be, how is a person most powerfully shown what true life really is? How are you most powerfully shown what true life really is? Where true life really comes from? So, I want to open to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to finish the chapter today. We'll pick it up in verse 24 to begin with. This comes right after, two weeks ago, we were in that story where we're at the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, you're in this, you're in the, this uh, land on the northern side of Galilee. Jesus has done this really, really interesting miracle seemed to be uh, experienced by a very large group of people, five to 10,000, and then, and then, but the miraculous nature of it, though they experienced the bread and the fish they got to eat, the miraculous power was seemed to be seen only by the disciples. Jesus broke the bread with them, but the disciples then went and handed it out to this huge crowd. So that caught our attention. And now today he's going to move from that region. He's going to get out of there. And the biggest reason is because he's drawing a crowd. That also grabs our attention, doesn't it? A man who intends to communicate a life-giving truth to a planet isn't interested in the crowds that are forming around him. That's abrasive to a modern mind in an information age. Okay, so he's been raising eyebrows. He's been creating a stir. People are coming to him for various reasons. He's doing miracles. He's preaching. We know the, the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's his purpose, he said, for doing his ministry. And now he's going to head north and west from Galilee. So we're headed toward the Mediterranean Sea. And he's going to come into a region that is outside of the historic borders of Israel. It'll be the first and only time Jesus goes outside of Israel. And he's heading deep into pagan territory, okay? Verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. After Jesus left there, he went to the region of Tyre. When he went into a house, 
He did not want anybody to know. But he was not able to escape their notice. Instead, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him and came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek of Seraphonician origin. And she asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and just throw it to the dogs. And she answered, well, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat under the table. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, hmm, because you said this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found a child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. That's pretty cool. She comes to him, falls flat on her face. Jesus says something that's borderline incredibly insulting. We'll get to that. <laughs> then she responds with a pretty, pretty witty remark. And Jesus says, that's good. That's really good. Why don't you head home? Because of that, because of where you're at with me, you're going to go home and find your daughter healed. That's really interesting. Mark gives one motive for Jesus' departure into Syria, and that motive is not to go on mission, is it? His motive is to get away from people. He's trying to find some solace and solitude. He needs some one-on-one -on -one time with his disciples, and he doesn't seem to see his wide-scale public notoriety as a positive thing. His popularity, his public acclaim, it's consistently a problem for him in Mark's gospel. Because, not as though uh, crowds are bad, but in Jesus' case, these crowds are not helping him accomplish what he wants to be doing. And as Christians, we're interested in what Jesus, our king, wants to be doing. Because <laughs> we kind of want to be doing that as well. So he's not just kind of one radical weirdo in the Christian community. He's the radical weirdo that we love and devote ourselves to and actually take his example as an example for good living. So here he is, and he's headed away from the crowds. He's trying to hide out. It doesn't pan out for him. He seems to be wanting to get away to establish a more direct contact with his disciples kind of a one-on-one -on -one relational dialogue, and he can't seem to ever get it because there's so many people badgering him. He seems to want to preach the good news to people. So we have sometimes in our idea, well, preaching, that must mean a pulpit, huge crowd. But that's obviously not how he understands his, his preaching. So that's our first input for the answer to our question. Our question is how to powerfully expose someone to God we're looking at two stories here, the Syrophoenician woman and then the deaf and the speech impediment guy. And we will see a trend throughout all of Jesus' life that you can see an example of in these two stories. And that is not a guy who's trying to get a huge platform, a big spotlight, or a large crowd. 
We can learn from that. I think we have to admit that we feel pretty great about big events. And we prefer very well-attended events, don't we? You set up a big event, and, man, a thousand people showed up. It was awesome. Or, man, I don't know, 20 people showed up, 10, four people. It just didn't work. That right there helps us to see, I think, that we do have a high value on crowds that Jesus seemed to say, well, maybe that could be beneficial or not. It depends on where we're at. What would you instinctively be most willing to give somebody? Along these lines, you think about trying to expose them to God. Where does your heart and mind go just instinctively? Would you be most willing to give them a book or an article about God's love and salvation? Or would you be most instinctively willing to share your own story about life with God during the past three or four days? When I try to value those, it's like three or four days, you know, since what, Thursday, nothing much is really, whatever. Mere Christianity by Sia, this is it. That is the power, the, the text that's so eloquent and perfectly crafted, edited well, published just right. What does my life have to do with much? Maybe I could take them way back to a sort of conversion moment, but the last three days, you know, I split some firewood and got a backache. <laughs> Whatever. I think one seems very important and one very smart. The other instinctively just feels less valuable, doesn't it? That feeling is what I want to set right on the examination table today. Think about that in the light of the gospel. That feeling, that instinctive feeling that we have that, yeah, well, my last week with God is neither here nor there. But by golly, this book, this article, this blog I linked to, you've got to read it. That's the thing. Jesus seems to be interested in something different. Okay, it looks like uh, from where he's at in northern Galilee, think the region around Galilee. So from that region to the region of Tyre, there's probably something like 20 to 40 miles. So you might think of walking from here up to Scapus in about the same direction. That's about 26 miles away. So he heads up there from the plains of Gennesaret, and he gets away from all of this popularity that he has had, and he's kind of rolling incognito, okay? He's on the down low, and, and based on my modern instincts, if I was with Jesus right before he heals this woman and her daughter, I think I would stop him. I'd say, Jesus, that's awesome what you're about to do. Let's pull this out onto the street. Let's set up some witnesses by the daughter, you know, so that they can testify to what has happened. And let's, let's actually capitalize on, we've got an opportunity here. If you're about to heal this daughter from a distance, that's like the first time you've done that kind of healing and uh, you're not gonna touch her, you're not gonna be even in the same room. You know, let's get this thing logged for the history book so we can make it happen. Let's get some witnesses over here. It's time to prove it, let's go big. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't seek that kind of credit, does he? It's really interesting. That's all wanting to have credit. We've been in Mark. Hopefully you're reading other Gospels and have read them as well. You kind of think with me about the way Jesus does his big ministry moments. 
Does he look for big accolades? Does he look for that credit that will sort of prove who he is? Think about his first miracle in John where he turns water to wine. That's a pretty profound deal. I can't do that. I wish I could. <laughs> he, can't, he, he does this, and who gets the credit? The master of ceremonies. Who wants to give Jesus the credit? His mom, the disciples. That's just instinctive. You, we got to show him what you can do. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Let's keep this quiet. My hour hasn't come. We're not going to do that. Give the credit to the master of ceremonies. Just the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. He doesn't stand up and say, look at the lunch. I provided your lunch, you know. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. He does it privately with his disciples, and he lets them do all the distribution of the food. We don't see anything in the story that says the crowd actually knew he did it. We do see that they wanted him to be the king, which we've talked about, not be my king and teach me how to live. It's be our king and beat the bad guys down that we don't have the power to beat. And Jesus says, no, that's not why I came. Over and again, we see Jesus making direct contact with people and doing really interesting and powerful things quietly. He instructs them, don't tell anybody. He says, you take the credit for this master of ceremonies. I don't want it yet. The one thing he wants credit for is when he brings glory to the Father on the cross. May I bring you glory. That's pretty interesting. Now, I've got to divert your attention briefly uh, before we continue. This is really important for us as a church as we grow and as we continue to move forward as a people. It's one of the things I'm running into and thinking often about is do, how do we understand ourselves as a church, as a people of God in this world? And one of the things I'd ask is when you enter a room with others, do you think to yourself, I am the presence of Christ to everybody here. Do we think of ourselves as the people of God whose, whose presence in this world is the presence of Christ himself? Or have we been conditioned to instinctively think of ourselves as less than or other than that? And if we have, and we have a, we have a distorted vision of what church life should be, do I see myself as the presence of Christ in my day-to-day -day life with the people that I'm engaging with? Or do I see myself merely as a conduit of information that will be really helpful for people? Jesus carefully, simply, without accolades or public praise, brings the presence and the power of God everywhere he goes. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't think Jesus believed that he was the one who was supposed to reach the entire world. I think you can just read the Gospels and see that. I think in a, in a, if, a, if you phrase that a certain way, it's totally true. And yet, this is the one time he leaves the nation of Israel's borders. If he was trying to go planetary on this thing, he kept it awfully tight. And if he was trying to go widespread, start a massive popular movement, he did not train very many people. Twelve, and one of them bailed badly. <laughs> Something about small is big needs to start to weigh in our minds and not just be like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. It needs to anchor into our heart and soul so that when I am 
engaging and making contact with my neighbor, I don't diminish that engagement because I'm not giving him a copy of a great book. He makes contact with people. He offers his life-giving presence to them. And then he says, he says to them often, now you go. In fact, we've watched this happen over and over, haven't we? Guy on the mat, he heals him, now you go. Sometimes they want to come, I want to be with you wherever. He's like, nope, go back to your household. Go back to your town. Go back to your path of life and directly connect with the people on it. Go and make contact with your household and your friends and your neighbors. Don't let anyone tell you that there's certain people in your neighborhood who are too unclean to be reached. That's a huge part of this Syrophoenician story. This is pagan territory. It's a pagan city. It's a Gentile woman, totally idolatrous. Each of these cities up in this region had their own gods, probably 10, 15 miles outside the city. All the people living there had to worship, do penance, pay tithes, whatever, to that local god. She's been raised. She grew up that way. Yahweh's not interesting to her. That's not part of her life in any kind of way. Here in the region of Tyre, I see the infinitely powerful creator God, the son of God, the creator of the universe incarnating in human flesh as a lower class human being, walking with his head down. He's got his first century hoodie up. He's scuffling quickly along one side of the street in the shadows, up against the buildings, and then he swiftly ducks into a small house. It's just not how I expect that kind of God to be bringing his message into this land. But I suppose that even as he's walking up, there might have been one of these uh, kids in the town who sees Jesus. Jesus maybe makes, I'm just guessing here, but Jesus makes eye contact with him in some way. The kid goes running over to the market to talk with his Uncle Sisyphus, you know, and he, he's the fabric trader. He says, hey, Uncle Sisyphus, check it out. I saw that one dude who was passing by here back when Pastor Ben was preaching on Mark chapter 3. <laughs> Mark 3, 7 says, then Jesus went away with his disciples. This is right at the launch of his ministry. Uh, he went away with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, beyond the Jordan River and around Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude came to him when they heard about the things he had done, healing, expelling demons, and so forth. So Jesus' uh, knowledge of Jesus has gone into Tyre, this region, beforehand. So when Jesus is now re-entering, or at least he's re-engaging with people who have had some contact with him, they knew something about him, people recognized him. That's why this woman says, oh my goodness, he's here. He's here, and this is the one I need to engage with. That's very interesting. This is not a woman who was like, is there a God, I wonder. Right? She knew there was a God. He was the one ruling her city. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one saving power in her mind, and yet she is diverted. Her attention is drawn by Jesus. She hears that he's in town, so there she is, and she comes to him. So one finds him and does something that I think should inspire us and convict us at the same time. She falls to her face at his feet. Have you and I been trained to fall at the feet of Jesus 
That one hits me pretty hard. I wasn't trained to fall at the feet of Jesus. I was trained to employ Jesus on my terms to bring me the things I wanted in the afterlife. It was my training. It was not to fall in reverent submission of all of my life to him as king. Do we fall before him in posture, our entire being, as one who's desperately in need of his life, or have we been trained to take a little bit of Jesus that we're cool with and then try to meld it together with, a, with an average, normal life? Are we pleading for his life alone? That's where she's at. Or do we stay on our feet when we encounter Jesus and we just say, yeah, I fell to my feet once. That's back when I got myself saved. Now, he's just my employee. I think I'm pretty good to go. Well, here she is. She's on her knees, forehead to the ground. I imagine arms forward. She's fallen prostrate before him. She says, in you alone my hope is found. It's funny, isn't it? In the midst of all of the promises of her pagan gods, gods that she has known, she's sacrificed her money and her life and time to, she's given herself over to throughout her life. It's just how it works. In the midst of all that background of cultural decay and idolatrousness, Jesus and his presence is not anywhere near thwarted. We think that sometimes. We think that, boy... Yeah, the gospel's powerful, but the cultural decay is just so much more powerful. Is that right? I don't think so. I think sometimes Satan does a work in our minds to help us think that the gospel is actually not quite that powerful. That Jesus is pretty powerful, but boy, oh boy, look at what the legislation now says. That's really powerful. Jesus walks into an idolatrous pagan land, and he does something profound. And it's interesting here, too. She's not even self-seeking, is she? She's seeking the well-being of her daughter. Now, he's made this contact with her, and he engages with her directly. And his dialogue with this woman is odd, isn't it? I think it's kind of abrasive. The way that Mark sets this up, having come right out of this dispute over clean and unclean and what can and can't be eaten and so forth. Now she goes, or he goes right into an unclean land with this unclean woman. And part of the Mishnah, later recordings of the oral tradition of the Jews, uh, we see a common sediment that's expressed, or it looks to be expressed here more clearly. I'll give you three sayings out of the Mishnah. There's plenty more. These are pretty telling, though, to give you a, a clue as to the context that Jesus came out of. Uh, this would be the oral tradition. So if you're just a Jewish person living in his day, this is what you're hearing from your religious teachers over and over. As the sacred food was intended for men, but not for the dogs, the Torah was intended for the chosen people, but not for the Gentiles. Okay? That's the sentiment that you've been raised with. Whoever eats with an idolater is like a man who eats with a dog. Or the third one, the ungodly are like dogs. Okay? So here's Jesus, and he says, why would I give this good ministry to you? Don't good things go to beings who aren't dogs, you know, like you? 
That's a major first century put down, isn't it? This does not fit. This is probably one of the most abrasive sayings of Jesus, quite frankly. It just doesn't fit with what we know about him. But I don't think he's putting her down. I think he's drawing her out. I think he's saying, do you really understand? Is that really what you're looking for? Do you really want this? I think it's abrasive because he appears to insult her. And I, I, like I've said, if you know just a little bit about the first century world and that word, you would say, good grief, you know, can't you tone it down a little bit? It's different. Today, what's up, dog? <laughs> that means, what news do you have for me, my friend? You know, back then, what's up, dog, meant I am up and you're a piece of trash. Jesus is, 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 is this like a racial slur that he's sort of just, well, he's Jewish, it's okay, it's not a big deal. I would say no, the short answer is no. That's not what he's doing. When you break this down, you can see the word that he's using, he puts in the diminutive form. Diminutive form is a way of sort of lessening it. It can be an, a, a nice way of saying somebody's name. So first, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's buddies. Priscilla is her name. Prisca is the diminutive. It's like, my name is Benjamin. Most of you call me Ben because we're friends. And it's a, it's a diminutive. It's a nice way. It's a way of making my name more personable or something like that, okay? So this happens here. He doesn't use the form of the word that means sort of rascally, ravenous, uh, dog out on the street eating garbage. It, it means more like a pet. Now, it still is a dog, and it's less than a human being, so that's intense. But he takes the sting out of it that way. And I think what he's saying we have to pay really close attention to. We have to be careful to not foist our own impressions back into the first century and say, how could he do that? She doesn't take it offensively, does she? I think what he's getting at is a very significant truth. And he says, my ministry goes first to Israel and then beyond. He's talking about the way this is going to work. Like a parent who feeds the children first before the animals of the household, I'm here to feed the children first, the children of God. Now, I like to imagine when he says that, kind of a wry grin, okay? I know it's not in the Bible, but I doubt it was like, I came here to feed the children first. You know, I think he's like, I think I came here to feed the children first. We don't throw scraps to the dogs, huh? He's drawing her out. His tone would have made all the difference. We know that. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Jesus was not a vindictive, off-putting, mean-spirited person who was trying to shut people down. In fact, his gospel, as Paul will interpret it later, it breaks down those social barriers that seem implicit in his words. The gospel says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free man, these socioeconomic structures that once valued people as higher and lower are gone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we know that he's not being the opposite of that, okay? We know that he is loving her deeply. He's uttering a basic truth about God's ordered plan. He's drawing her out, and her answer is so good. It's so good. The woman feels no insult by Jesus. And it's an intense statement, and she's not, <gasps> instead, she sinks on her feet, and she uses his own comparison to her advantage. The crumbs dropped by the children 
after all, is intended for the dogs. You yourself know that, Jesus. Uh huh. She takes what he says at face value, and she says, ah, but listen to what you're saying. It's intended for me, is it not? And that's why I'm here. She accepts his comparison. She gives a very clever reply. And the profound respect that she has for Jesus and the way that she talks with him shows you and me that her confidence in his power and his goodwill is not shaken by his response, which feels really unsettling at, at first glance. That was like me. Jesus' description of life to me and his reality and the way he operates was very unsettling to me at first. When you get to know him, you realize his job and his goal is not to unsettle you if, if for any reason other than to save you and give you life. He seems to be delighted with this level of confidence that she has in him, and his direct connection with her has made all the difference, hasn't it? And he quietly sends her back, go home. Go home, your daughter's well. Not, boy, do you, do you like what I did for you? Will you tell a bunch, can you help me get the word? Come on, come on. No, he says, I'm gonna just engage with you in a loving, direct way. He treats her well, though at first it doesn't seem like it. And he sends her home and she goes home and he has brought life into her household. That's beautiful. Now let's read this last little story together. It's, uh, we'll start at in verse 31, and as we do, think about the main point that Mark is trying to drive at. Verse 31, then Jesus left this area, this vicinity of Tyre, and he went throughout Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Ten Cities, the Decapolis. And there, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Not necessarily dumb or mute, uh, think more of a really heavy-duty speech impediment that keeps him from being able to articulate words. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Verse 33, after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. Hmm. Then he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. And at this the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them to not tell anybody. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The big thing to notice, the real attention grabber, is Mark's throwback all the way to creation. God finishes creating and he says, it is good. Here he is in a context where Jesus' life has communicated that truth about God himself to the people, to the point where it's not God saying this is good, it's the world at large saying, whoa, he does everything well. 
Jesus' direct contact with people has brought the truth of God to bear, and they're able to look at it and say, my goodness, this Jesus does all things well. Jesus shows us a God who makes things, a God who fixes, a God who restores and renews. He is the creator and the recreator. Jesus steps into the void of darkness into a Gentile and pagan region, and through simple direct contact with just two people, he brings a life and a new light there. He expels evil. He heals sicknesses. And he's deeply interested in people, real people, individual people. He lives out the language of the Bible. I don't see him handing scrolls out as much as I see him living it. He lives it out. Isaiah 35, 5. We read that earlier in our worship time where the great prophet tells of a time when God is going to do exactly this. He'll unplug ears. He'll loosen the tongue so it can speak. And even though Jesus is presented as a healer, see, people are coming to him because he's a healer. That's not new in their world. They're not like, wow, we have never seen somebody traveling around with a group of people claiming to be a healer. In fact, that's pretty commonplace. So he's fitting into a stereotype or he's living with an identity that people would associate a lot of things with, which were probably not true about Jesus, but that didn't matter to him. He comes in as a healer, but his power is real, and this is why they are greatly surprised. They're overwhelmed with amazement. Jesus' healing actually heals. Their surprise suggests that all of the other healers might not have been that effective, <laughs> right? If the many other traveling healing types were rolling through town and doing something of value, and then Jesus comes and does something of value, they'd be like, well, yeah, that's what they all do. But no, they're totally shocked. And he treats this man well. If you're like me, we might have wondered, well, why take the man aside in private? Did you pick that up? His buddies come down, there's a crowd hanging out, and Jesus says, hey, come with me. He doesn't even invite the friends who transported the fellow down. It's just you and me with this deaf man. Why not call the neighbors out to see his demonstration of power and take the credit? Followed up with a good long talk about who he really is. Now, this is a simple question, I think, but it's a profound question that we can think about well beyond this morning. The way that Jesus spreads his message helps you to think deeply about what that message actually is, and it's more than words. The way he spreads his message, I think, cues us into the nature of his message. It's more than works, it's more than deeds, it's more than what he says. His message comes through those for sure. There's no doubt about that. But also through an overall fullness of his life with the Father, directly connecting, contacting places where there is no life. When I say the fullness of his life with the Father, you have to step beyond words into an experience of life with God. He brings his loving, secure, courageous experience of life with the one true God to bear in the lives of other people, simple, small scale, one-to-one, -one, and he's very interested in taking this guy 
off to the side to just have a direct contact with them. I think there's an answer to our question, and we see it most clearly here in this, in this handicapped man. How is a person most powerfully exposed to the living and active God? We see that Jesus' life doesn't answer that in the ways that we might instinctively answer it. He takes him aside. He engages him quietly. He's not seeking attention. He's loving this man as a human being, a valuable individual, not as a project to solve. And this kind of contact is so important to him and his message. He doesn't see him as a case to solve or a way to leverage some other agenda. It's just, this is the end goal. The miraculous nature of a human life, infinitely beautiful, this deaf man standing before him, commands all of the respect that God built into this deaf man, and Jesus engages with him as though he values him as a miracle of the infinite God, not a task, a person. Like your neighbors and your coworkers, this man is infinitely valuable to Jesus, the Son. He created him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, the Son, we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, is the one through whom all things have been created. Jesus, as man, is hanging out with the man that he created, and he's treating him that way. For us to be Christ-like requires that we start to look at people that way, all people. I don't care how unclean somebody has taught you a certain person is. That gets blown up by Jesus. He goes into the place where we would never, ever think about going. The greater purpose of his mission is literally unfolding before us. It's to bring good creation back to the world. It's to heal and restore and save. And Jesus makes this direct, physical, and even intimate contact with the man. That's pretty intimate. I rarely spit on my hand and touch people's tongues. <laughs> you know, just, on, just here with the, all of you. I think it can be really encouraging for us who so often feel like our presence or our direct contact with somebody is kind of like, well, you know, wah, wah, it's not that important. I want us to learn today from these stories and all that we've been watching Jesus do that our simple, honest, life-giving presence with others is actually one of the most powerful ways to expose people to the truth of God. It's one of the most powerful possible ways. Can you and I give a deaf guy two wet willies and have him here? I don't think so. It's just not going to happen. And that's kind of what I think sometimes. I'm like, well, I can't do that. But can you love that deaf guy the same way that Jesus would? Oh, yeah. And can you show him Jesus' kindness through your life? You take him to this passage. You can do so many things just by directly connecting with folks. That doesn't seem valuable, but it is. Is Jesus telling us that being Christ-like means solving everybody else's problems or fixing the ills of our world? I don't, probably not. I don't think that's the main goal of the New Testament to say, hey, if you want to be Christ-like, you've got to figure out a way to heal deafness forever. 
It just doesn't, Jesus just doesn't read that way. There's so many, thousands of deaf people around. He doesn't heal all of them, which can be abrasive for us, but it helps us to see what he is doing. I think that he can and he will heal all deafness in his kingdom, along with every other handicap. But living with him and for him helps us to bring people into that kingdom where he will do that later on. Jesus is showing us that he didn't seek those public attaboys and popular praises. And he shows us that some of our instincts about ministry need to be reconsidered. And they can be in a really healthy way. I suspect Satan would be very pleased, very pleased to have us thinking that simple direct contact with people on our path of life is, is, is one of two things, two crappy things. It's either wrong, you shouldn't be doing that because those people are unclean, or it's really not that important because there's so many better preachers and teachers out there. Satan would love to have us sitting in one of those two places. And I think that we do. One of my last pastoral overseers, I will never forget sitting with him as he was happily talking about a dinner time he had planned later on that day. And he was going to have a group of people, and it was his old high school buddy. I thought, oh, that's cool. They haven't reconnected for a while. He said, yeah, he owns 12 strip clubs here in town. I thought to myself, okay. It just kind of smacked me. I'm like, boy, you're going to have him over and and have him over for table fellowship, and I'm thinking of, this is a man who supports prostitution. This is a man who supports the global sex trade. This is a man who brings decay and difficulty and crime into neighborhoods by supporting, like, this is his presence. And yet this pastor is like, yeah, I'm going to have direct contact with him. He's an old friend of mine. I'm going to love him the way that Jesus would love him. That pastor, by the way, used to pastor here at this church. I want to learn from Jesus. And these two encounters help me to see a way of ministry that is so doable for every one of us. And it's less about us going out, figuring out new ways to make lots and lots of contact with people. We just don't have the capacity to build lots. I feel that way a lot often, too. Like, if you want to minister to people, I have to now somehow become a human being who can have 50,000 relationships. I can't. You can't either. His message isn't so much go out and make as much possible contact as you can. It's just not how his life rolls out. It's far more recognize the infinite valuable nature of the connections you have in your life. So often we pass by all these really potentially fruitful moments because they're not big enough or important enough to us. Jesus helps us to review and rekindle that love for others where we say, hmm, yeah, just talking with my neighbor is actually infinitely valuable. It's not less than. When Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, I know that we often immediately think the Bible. The Bible is living and active, and I agree with that. But I think there's a double entendre in that passage. And that's, that's the thought I want to close with. He says the logos of God, the word of God, is a common term for Jesus himself as living and active. And I'd encourage you to go back and read that passage in Hebrews 4. You'll see it reads a lot more clearly as though Jesus himself is living and active. 
He himself is the one who discerns and can pierce through to bone and marrow and all that kind of stuff. It's beautiful. Jesus is living and active. We know that because of Easter. He rose from the dead, and we have said so often in this community, we live in his life. We are the presence of Christ in the world. We ought not denigrate that because we're not publishing books. And we ought not let Satan convince us that we're foolish or weak or stupid or insignificant because we don't have a pulpit and a microphone. And instead, we can actually say, Jesus, with the word, him, the word himself in his living word, the text of the Bible, all of this, it's living, it's active, and he is present through me in this world. That's where I want to land it. Simple, direct contact is not just you contacting people. It's Jesus himself making contact with the lost world through you. Let's pray. Jesus, you, you've watched my life unfold for the past 37 years here, and you know that it, it has only been in the last decade or so that I have started to seriously consider your ways and see the goodness of life with you, and I'm so thankful for that, but I have to confess, and I know I can on behalf of many here, that I, I, I so highly value you, and I so love just how awesome you are, and also these great saints that went before and are alive today, I just quickly fall into this mindset of, who am I? I'm just, I'm a, I'm a nobody, it doesn't matter. And I love the way that your story, you were a total nobody back then. You just didn't matter in so many ways. And yet you knew that you did because God was with you and you lived that way all of the time. Help us to be there with you in our lives today. Help us to live for you and to not think less of ourselves and be willing to make real direct contact fearlessly with everybody in our path. We believe you cross our paths with other folks for a reason. We believe that you're with us. We believe that you love us and that you love every human being as a miracle. Thank you. Amen.